Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 55. And the last time the message was titled, A Blessed Future, it's so cool because you know we're talking about the Israelites, we're talking about their history, but God's word, it's been dubbed the living word. And as a new Christian, I didn't really understand that until I actually started studying his word and realized the powerful applications, not only for people back then, uh, germane to the script, but also for us today. Actually, two people came forward to receive Jesus yesterday. Uh, this morning, the message is titled, I did put a smiley face to make it a little humorous. It's titled, Just Come Already. <laughs> because, you know, if you're new to the scripture, it's probably going to be exciting to you because you're like, well, gee, I heard a lot of things about the Bible and what I hear on the media. And it's not very flattering because their agenda is not for God's agenda. But when you actually start studying the word and, and you know, understanding the texts and the manuscripts and the archaeology, it really does come to life. To understand that over 600 years before Christ actually came to the earth, here you have these details about who he is, what he's going to look like, um, you know, the, the Roman way and, and the crucifixion. It's really very, very powerful, especially when you figure six to 700 years to give so much detail about something that's going to happen. It's like almost, it's really impossible unless God can see outside of time, he can see the future. So we're going to look at that. And, um, you know, the last few chapters of Isaiah, we're, we're going all the way up to chapter 66, which is the last chapter. Uh, and basically, there's just a lot of messianic references. Uh, really pretty powerful stuff, and we're going to look at it in five parts. So jumping in, it says in verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Going back to King David, from his line, the Messiah came. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, the Gentiles, and nations who do not know you shall, shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So one out of five is that, again, six, seven hundred years before it happened is God the Son is speaking through his word, through his prophet Isaiah, to get the world ready and excited for his advent where he's going to call everybody to salvation. Again, when you really get into the nuts and bolts of this stuff, it's really quite fantastic. So number one, Messiah's invitation to all. Now, understand that back then, when you're looking at water, wine, milk, bread, you know, today we go to the supermarket, and uh, every aisle has hundreds of everything that you need. But back then, you had some staples 
that were there for your survival. And a lot of people didn't even have the, uh, the money to eat meat. So you see these things being spread out here, and they're vital for survival. Now, understand there's symbolism in the scripture. God uses these food metaphors, these food and drink metaphors, which we're going to cover. But the symbolism, when you look at water, when you look at wine in the Bible, it was often symbolic of the Holy Spirit. When you look at bread, Jesus is the bread of life, right? Symbolic of Jesus. When you look at milk, the Bible speaks about, especially as a new believer, the milk of God's word. And why the food metaphors? Because as the physical body, how many days can you go uh, without have, drinking water? Not, not a lot. How many days can you go without eating food? A little more, but still not a lot. Okay? You, we need these on a daily basis to keep our physical bodies alive. So he uses these food metaphors to help us to understand that without God and his word, the physical or the spiritual, correct that, uh, the, the spiritual won't survive. So that's why he uses them. Verse 1, and again, you, you, you might look at this and on the surface have a little bit of trouble with it, but understand that we've been going, tra- chapter 1, you know, 2, 3, we've been going methodically, systematically all through Isaiah, now we're on 55. So there's some context that's built into this, all right? There's some, there's some backdrop. Um, he says, one, you who have, who have no money, come buy and eat. And I've been going through these, I guess what you could call apparent oxymorons. There's, uh, they seem contradictory, but God does that on purpose. He's saying, come buy and eat, but you have no money. So how do you do that? Well, it's because it's something that God provides. When we're looking at salvation, I couldn't have purchased my salvation. I couldn't have paid God back. Um, this was something that Christ paid for on the cross. He died for my sins. So when God had, when Christ had called me to salvation, I had nothing to offer him. But he had everything to offer me, and I took his offer of salvation. Pretty neat stuff. So you see this purchasing, buying, and eating. It's not literally going to the market. It's different ways that God uses to help us understand that he wants us to come to him. So verse 2, there's also a contrast where he says that why do you spend money for what is not bread? You think you're buying bread, but it's not. Why do your wages for what does not satisfy? In other words, the contrast is that the world, the world system offers a counterfeit salvation. It offers a counterfeit, counterfeit satisfaction. So many people who have come out of the world, you know, where are you? At what point in your life? 30s, 40s, 50s, teens, 60s, 70s, and you just come to Christ. You say, well, this is the day I, I want to turn to the living God and I want to be saved. I want to have a relationship with him. But what happens is in the world, the world offers a counterfeit salvation and satisfaction. I tried it all and bought my first house when I was in my 20s, fixed it up, sold it, made a profit. You know, I had all these things. I got the job that I wanted. I had everything that I wanted, but I still wasn't satisfied. I was still empty. And that spiritual void can only be filled with God. Some of you might in your minds thinking, well, that's what you think. You know, I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to pursue that and, and have at it. But there is, a, there is a, a hole, a void that people throw physical things in or things of the world. They get stale. They get old then they do it again. And this goes on their whole life. 
you won't be completely satisfied without having a relationship with the living God. So that's the, the void that only a certain thing can fill, and that's a relationship with God. So this morning, my question to you is, have you been chasing things? Have you been chasing relationships? Religion. Religion's easy. That's an easy one. I mean, if you want to assuage your guilt, you find a religion where you, you know, they don't give you a hard time. You write a small check once in a while. You go on Sunday. You say a few things. And then you do whatever you want once you leave church again. That's not a relationship with God. That's cheap. But it makes a lot of people feel good that they're chasing religion. Here we don't chase Calvary Chapel. We don't chase this church. We look to have a relationship with the living God through Christ. So my question to you is, has it left you wanting? Has it left you empty? And if it hasn't yet, it will. Give it some time. The earlier, the better. Uh, But the best things in life truly are free and priceless. You look at love. Can you put a price tag on love? You can. Acceptance. Salvation. Hope. Joy. Peace. Well, you can have some of those things in this world, but they won't be in their purest form. Okay? Especially when you're getting them from people. Because we're sinners. One sinner is going to try to fill another sinner with... You know, even our our love, the Bible talks about this agape love, this sacrificial love that God exhibits to us. We rarely exhibit it to each other. That's why there's so many problems in the world. That's why there's so many relationship problems. There's so many, you know, uh, lawsuits and people just, it's just the way the world is. There's only one place you can find it. Now, what I want to do is I want to go through the scripture in John. John is a very powerful book that really expresses, it's a gospel that expresses the true deity of Christ. And if we can jump into John 4, starting with verse 13, just going to go through some short passages. And uh, what is Jesus saying in these passages? Now listen, Jesus, it doesn't matter who he's hanging out with. It doesn't matter if it's a thief. It doesn't matter if it's a corrupt religious leader. It doesn't matter if it's a, an immoral person. Uh, he always tries to bring them to God. That's his, his mindset, uh, to save them. So in John 4, 13, it says, Jesus, Jesus answered and said to her, so he's, he's sitting with a woman at the well who is ostracized by her village because she has some morality problems, and nobody would give her the time of day except for Jesus. So it says, he says to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. She's at the well at an unusual time because... She's got no peers, sadly, for her. She's lonely. Um, so she's going to draw this water from the well. She really, you know, you need water, right? Back then, you didn't have, it didn't come from the tap. Jesus is trying to get her to make the switch from H2O to living water, to spiritual things. Verse 14, he says, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Right? Think about this past a dry throat, you know what I'm saying? I'm parched. Think about this as as water satisfying and then make the leap to the spiritual. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. That's what Christ promises us. And you can't find this living water in the world. If we could jump to John 6, starting with verse 26. So he's speaking to a different group of people now. Right? This, Jesus did this all day, all day long, morning, night, just trying to bring people to salvation. 
this was a group that followed Jesus. He's, he's gaining in popularity. They see the miracles. Um, and some just followed him for the miracles. They wanted a quick healing, right? Uh, they also wanted a free meal. It's understandable. But they didn't necessarily want God. And people do that today, too. They want, what can God give me, but I'm not ready for God, okay? Verse 26, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled, right? Free food. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said, what sign will you perform? People do that today. You know, well, I'll only believe in God if I see some sign. Look at creation. Romans, we're going to be covering Romans after Isaiah. Look at God's signature on creation. It's an amazing thing uh, when you study it. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, speaking about himself, and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. He was always trying to get people to change their mind from the physical to the spiritual. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Continuing on, 7, verse 37. Different group of people, right? Same message. On the last day of that great, actually it says on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, you know, when you're truly filled by God, it isn't just for you. It actually spills onto others if we're doing it right. You know, there's a lot of people say, oh, I'm a Christian. Some people are cultural Christians, but God knows who's his and who's not. And those who are truly his, they have an effect on those around him, and albeit a positive effect, okay? But this he spoke, Jesus spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this is before the crucifixion and the resurrection. So you see these these, again, food and drink metaphors that uh, Isaiah 55 is speaking about in roughly the 7th century B.C. And in the 1st century, Jesus picks this up and he elaborates even more. So pretty, pretty cool stuff. Verse 2, he says, listen diligently, eat what is good, let your soul delight. We're back to Isaiah 55. In true abundance, I added true, because why, folks? Because God really wants the best for us. I grew up in a religion where I quit after a while because I felt, I felt, I can't do this. You know, I, I looked at myself, I looked at my lifestyle, I looked at what I was into, and I'm like, God would want nothing to do with me. 
but it was because it wasn't being taught properly. You know, it wasn't until my 20s that I went to a Bible-believing church and I got a different picture of who God really is. Sometimes religious institutions use the fear of God to control people. And that's really what, not what we're supposed to do, right? So when we read the truth, we see that God really wants the best for us. He says, come, he says, hear, he says, buy. And God calls us with his cords of love, but he also won't force us. It is an act of our free will. Now, this everlasting covenant, according to the sure mercies of David, if you're newer to the scripture, there's going to be some things that even as I explain them, you're going to say, yeah, but I didn't understand that part. Just understand, just drink the milk of the word, and eventually God will grow you in your understanding of his word. Because when we go out into American culture, there's cults, there's uh, things on TV that are false, there's agenda-driven pictures of what the scripture says. It's, it, we live in the age of information, but we also live in the age, and I've said this many a times, of disinformation. You wonder what you read, what you see, you know, what's really real and what's not real. Well, I can tell you that this has stood the test of time. This, <laughs> this was written in many different manuscripts before American culture ever even existed. So let's, this predates whatever confusion we're looking at today. Okay? So the sure mercies of David, David, King David, Second uh, Samuel 7, God promised David that the Messiah would come through his line. So that's what we're speaking about here. Um, verse 5 is Gentile inclusion, right? The Jews uh, saw the Gentiles, and, and they were right, as worshiping idols, worshiping some weird things, even some demonic practices. So it was kind of neat because God is saying to the Jews, these people, and this is cool how God does this. God loves the whole world, right? He was telling his own people, don't look down on them because in a few hundred years, you're both going to be together in what my organization of the church pretty impressive, huh? So sometimes God has to straighten us out. You know, we have a, a pre, you know, a prejudice or a predisposition and God says, no, 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 that's not the way I want it, right? I'm going to bring you all together in one tent. Pretty cool stuff. Verse six, continuing on, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So two out of five is seek the Lord and repent. Now, there's going to be, (laughs) I use academia and media speak, there's going to be triggers. If you don't know God's word really well, you're going to hear something and it might set off a trigger, and maybe a false trigger, a false alarm. Oh, I've heard that word repent, and I'm, I'm scared about that word. Usually the preachers in, on the streets of New York you know, are firing brimstone, and uh, they say that word. Understand what we're going to talk about, the word repent. It actually just means to change the mind and to change the will, to change direction and turn towards the living God. Now, verse 6, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found and while he is near. Now, this is a little chilling, but understand that we are in the age of grace. Ever since Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, we are in this dispensation, it's awesome, of God's grace. So anyone at any point in time can just come to the Lord. You could do it today if that's your choice. 
You know, you want to have that relationship with the living God. That's your choice. You're in the age of grace. But when we look at some of the Lord's parables, Matthew 25, the parable of the ten maidens, we look at Luke 14, the parable of the great supper, what happens is God calls and calls and calls, and God's been calling for thousands of years. Think about that. He calls and he calls, he calls, he calls people to him. And then, according to these parables, time ends and the doors close. There's a sense of urgency. Don't gamble with your salvation. If God is trying to reach you today and you're wrestling right now with thoughts, that's actually a good thing. That means you came in here thinking one thing and God is trying to get a hold of your heart. But again, he's not going to force you. God doesn't make slaves. You know, love is, is free in, in both parties, right? If, if it's true love, one party's not being forced to do something. So God, he calls, he calls, he calls, but eventually human time is going to run out and then we get into eternity. There's another thing, you know, you don't know if today's going to be your last day. You know, I'm doing more funerals and praying for more people that are dying that are younger than me. We don't know what day is going to be our last day. Don't gamble with your salvation. So verse 7, let the wicked forsake his ways, return to the Lord, and be pardoned. So again, let's talk about this repentance. Repentance is to change direction and change the mind. So in, in a sense, this is the world. Now, I'll just use me as an example. Every day you know, of my life, I just kept moving towards the world. I saw promotions, I saw a car, I saw relationship, I saw money, I saw... And just this is where I was going. And what happens is when you're introduced to the word, there's something going on over here. And you turn and it's God. He's calling you through his word, Jesus' word, salvation. You have a choice to make. You can keep going in this direction. Now, of course, even if you turn to the living God, you still have to eat. You still have to clothe yourself. You still have to live somewhere, right? Shelter. So those things don't go away, but your perspective changes. So what you do is you turn around, you, you turn towards God. Now you're concerned with what he thinks. You're concerned with what your purpose is in life according to him. So repentance is a change. First, it starts with the mind. Well, actually, first it starts with the spirit, the mind, and then a lot of our behaviors and actions. So repentance is actually a very cool thing that God had set up. Now, for me personally, walking towards the world, all I could think about every day when I got up and I opened my eyes was sin and self. Some things I didn't know they were sin. It just was, this was just Joe's lifestyle. You know, we're very self-centered. Because we don't, God didn't give us the ability to, to actually literally walk in somebody else's shoes. So every day it was, it was self, sin, 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 self, self, sin. This, this is all I did. And then I understood who God was and my mind started to change. You see what I'm saying? And it's, a, it's really a good thing. Now, what's interesting is that when you're not saved and your spirit has not been quickened by the living God... You actually have singleness of mind. All you think about is yourself. Well, I'll speak for myself, okay? I don't want to <laughs> insult anybody. Just everything that happened in life really had to do with my perspective. And then what happens is when you start to follow God, you still have the old nature of the flesh. It gets challenging. I would never come up here and say, because it would be a lie, that just come to Jesus 
and everything will be perfect. That's a lie. Some people preach that. Because now you want to please God, but you still have the flesh that bears these. Now, it's not going to be like this all the time. God is eventually going to remake everything so we don't have struggles with sin. We're just, it's just going to be an awesome time. But until that time, I'm a pastor. You know, If the requirements for a pastor was to be sinless, I'll tell you right now, what do you want me to sign? I'm handing in my resignation because I'm not sinless. I have to repent every day. I don't want to let God down, and I let myself down. I let people around me down. I don't want to do that. So if you're considering that walk to receive Christ, don't start getting in your head, well, I got to do this first. I got to clean this. Well, I'm I'm involved in this. Just come. Let the Lord work through your life. You'd be surprised. Five years, you'll look back and say, you know what? I am a different person. But it's a slow process. It's a slow process. Now, we look at pardon, we look at mercy, we look at a lot of these terms. Justification, to be made righteous. And that's by faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. I often say this, that, well, let me read Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Two verses, a lot of power in those two verses. This is why it's so good to read the scripture. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It says, for by grace, God's grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith is the conduit. It's the vehicle. And that not of yourselves. We can't do anything to save ourselves. When I came to Christ, I I felt I was pretty accomplished in life. That was one thing I couldn't accomplish, my own salvation. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God gives us a gift. Salvation. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And this is where religion is a problem. Because with religion, you know, and there's a lot of different rules and a lot of different religions. Tell me that's not an unfair system. That is thousands of religions on the planet, right? But what Jesus says is, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your ethnicity is. I don't care where you live. You can be saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the whole world, that if he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish, right? But have eternal life. So when we look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and this is the way I look at it, grace through faith. It's almost like, the, you know, there's, there's like this cloud of grace that's just ready to rain down on us. And you just need something to pop it. <laughs> it's God's grace. It's his gift. And when you turn to the living God and trust in him, trust in what Christ did on the cross for your sins, that's that vehicle that opens up the cloud that rains down that grace on you. Yeah, there's a lot. Two verses, a lot of stuff in those two verses. You know, there are just going to be some things that you'll find out when you're on the other side. I can explain, I can give you my perspective, but... You know, it's got to be your perspective. When you're on this side, your understanding is opened exponentially. It's it's like the Bible says that like cataracts are lifted from your eyes. You can see. So part of it has to be a leap of faith. But it doesn't mean we don't ask questions. I love the questions. Verse 8, we continue. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, God is speaking, Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, who can measure that? 
So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Three out of five is God's ways are different from ours. And as a new believer, this is a learning curve. You know, I would read the scripture and say, but I saw this on TV and I don't know, this kind of seems right. The more you read his word, you see the mind of God, the heart of God, what he desires for us, what's right and what's wrong according to him. Isaiah 5.20 says, spoke about the time in the... Uh, time of the Israelites, and I would say our culture too, where wrong seemed right and right seemed wrong. Everything was kind of flipped, right? The culture had gotten decadent. But God is saying, you know, I know everything. I'm God. I created it all. I don't have to think about things. I don't have to change my mind. Everything that's knowable is within God, and it's up to us to find these things out. But I have to laugh because we can, we can say... And, and this is part of the, the, the journey of a believer, especially a new believer with their, with their God, right? The prodigal comes home, is that you're learning like a child. And the Bible speaks about that a lot. He speaks about baby and child metaphors when we come to, to Christ. But it's funny because we can deceive ourselves even in prayer. How many have you, because I can say that I have, how many have prayed, you know, Lord... If you help me through this, I could do so much more for you. Lord, if you just got me a bigger house, Lord, if you just got me that promotion. Uh, and sometimes we're disappointed when God doesn't answer those prayers. But his ways are higher than our ways. And I've said this before, thank God for unanswered prayers. There might be a, a whole storehouse somewhere when we get to heaven of these unanswered prayers. And it's like, Lord, all those you didn't answer, how come? Well, if I answered this one, this would have happened and you didn't see that. If I answered this one, that would have happened and that wouldn't have been good for you. So I just rest assured knowing that any of my prayers that haven't been answered, God's ways are higher than my ways. He has a better plan. And I can tell you, 20-something years as a believer, he's never let me down. But we need to be open and humble as we seek his will. Now, let's look at this in context because context is extremely important God's ways are higher than man's ways. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to who? To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So somebody who doesn't know anything about Christianity, and God wants them to come to him, there's a lot of mockers out there. Everybody's mocking everybody. This is just the way it is. You see, you read a news article, you look at it on social media, People are just nasty, you know. It's like, how about just a regular debate? They just slam each other. But there's those who mock God, and I don't feel like I have to defend God. He's far bigger than, than me. So I just try to bring people closer to God. But the foolishness, right? The cross is looked at as something extremely foolish by academia, right? By the elites, by those who have way too many degrees uh, under their belts, and they start to lose common sense. They certainly start to lose the understanding or the, the desire to understand how God thinks and how he orchestrated this. You see, the Christ on the cross made it fair for everyone, right? It's not that uh, I'm the couch potato Christian and I do absolutely nothing and my religion says, no problem, you're saved. Somebody in the back is every day like Mother Teresa doing loving people and it's, this, it's, it's a different standard. What God did was he said, you just got to trust in what Christ did on the cross. It's the same standard for everyone. It's a very fair system. 
You see what I'm saying? I mean, when I went to Rutgers, I took all the math and the statistics and um, logic, reason, and persuasion. It's kind of funny because I didn't know the Lord, but I used a lot of that man's understanding to really make sense of what the scripture says, right? Because people do this. What's the median sin? What's that middle sin? Is it murder? Because that's what you hear a lot. Well, I'm going to heaven because I didn't kill anybody. Really? So does that mean that all the other sins below, um, they're okay? What about robbery? What about aggravated assault? And people do this. And then what's going to happen is everyone's going to argue about what the median sin is. What, what's the mean sin? What's the average? Is there a certain amount of And this is what academics would do. This is what religion does. Well, your good works over your bad works. What's the mean sin? How do we average these things out? What number do we come with? If you get 0.1 over that number, you're, you're going down, <laughs> elevator down. So man's ways really don't make sense because nobody, there's really no fair system. God's ways are perfect. So when we talk about the message of the cross, this is, a, this is perfect because Christ is even saying this hundreds of years before he comes to the earth. Now, the only caveat to this is, you know, again, the religion I came from is you didn't question. You didn't question the clergy. You didn't question what you were taught. And as a kid, we have a lot of questions. I, I came to a Calvary, and it's like I, all those questions for all those years, they just were in my head. I remember uh, counseling with one of the pastors, and he was being very patient with me, but I was in that office a long time. I had all these Bible questions. And I'm like, what about Noah? What about this? And he, I still remember, he's a good friend of mine now, but... Uh, we should ask questions because we're inquisitive children and God wants to answer those questions. So that's the only caveat. Questioning, asking questions, there's nothing sinful about it. You just want to know. And a lot of people have been convinced by asking questions. Verse 10, continuing on, it says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, there's, a, there's another translation. The Hebrew word can mean until they water the earth. And make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. God says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So four out of five is that regardless of how it appears, you can't see what God is doing behind the scenes. God's word will always accomplish its will. You know, that person that you try to comfort in the doctor's office um, maybe asking to pray for them or sharing scripture with them. It didn't seem like it went anywhere. Or the, the skeptic who's at work, who's, and I've, I've heard these, it's amazing. That person who's antagonistic to your faith, and, and I've had this, I go to work and I'm like, all right, this guy, he's gonna, you know, and I'd have to be real patient because I really cared about him and I wanted him to be saved. And then after a while, you know, all the, you know, you start to answer them, you start to share with them and, something starts to change inside of them and they actually become, now when they have to go for surgery, they take you aside privately and say, would you pray for me? Where did that come from? Because God's word doesn't come back void. And what does he do? He compares his word spiritually, right, to the ecological cycles as Jesus used those metaphors in the New Testament. I mean, you look at the properties of water, rain after a drought, you know, especially if you're a farmer and you're, the ground is cracked and your crops are starting to die. Oh my goodness, clouds overhead starting to pour down is like, oh, that's like the best thing in the world. But God's word is also like that. And we live in a culture that's, that has a spiritual drought. 
You know, everybody's offended by everything. People are at each other's throats based on their political opinions. It's dry here. But God's word is like that rain that parches the earth and, and, and hydrates the ground and lets a crop grow. I love his metaphors. And they're so simple that even the uneducated could, could understand them as well. So you, water is what? The universal solvent. Did you know that enough water rushing against a, a stone, a rock, eventually will wear a, will wear a, a, a gouge, a gorge into it? Uh, it's the universal solvent. God's word can get through anything. It's necessary for the sustenance of life, intra and extracellular, properties of water. God uses it for a reason. He says it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. As a rain produces diverse crops for the, the farmer, for the person who maybe is eating the bread and buying the bread, so God's word does a diverse work to different people. Let me give you an example. This morning, what did God's word do for me? Well, it helps me to give counsel and encouragement from the pulpit. Right? I study, I study, I study. Why? Well, to encourage you, to send you home so that this week something that you heard can have a spark, have an effect in your life, how you deal with others, a uh, difficulty that you're going through. What does it do for you? Maybe, and people do this, they come up after service, someone will come up to me and go, oh, you spoke about my situation, who told you? Uh, maybe God did, I don't know what you're talking about. But the thing is that God's word now is doing something different for you. Maybe a counsel from the pulpit. I love to hear it. Sometimes people will come to me and say, it's private, I can't discuss it. But in this, in this message, I got my answer, thank you. I just can look up and go, well, thank you. You know what I'm saying? So it does different things to different people. Uh, to the oppressed, they can find hope. To the oppressor, hopefully they can find conviction. The man who wrote the song Amazing Grace, which is a beautiful and powerful song, was convicted by the word of God because he owned a slave ship. And the word penetrated his heart, and he gave up everything. He gave up all those financial... He, he just said, I, I have to follow God. And he was, it was so deep that he realized the horrible things that he allowed. But God's grace, you know, and he tried to change things and make them better. It's amazing. He was an oppressor. It convicted his heart. It's powerful stuff. It happens every day. I love reading the stories about former terrorists who become Christians by reading. Somebody gave them a little piece, a page of the New Testament, and they're reading it, and they they give up their life of terrorism. God's word's powerful. You have no idea what it's doing underneath, you know, behind the scenes, right? God's word never comes back void. For some, they do become more hardened. The illustration goes like this, that the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay, Right? Do an experiment. August, right? 90 degrees. Put out your block of ice. Put out your Play Doh. You know what I'm saying? Come back in a few hours and see what happens. There's no more ice. It's been melted. But the Play Doh is like a solid block. It's like a rock. There's nothing you can do with it. So God's word even accomplishes, sadly enough, for those that are, that are truly hardened, they become more hardened, like Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart. Then God hardened his heart. He kept him in that state, right? He didn't, you know, he was throwing pearls before swine. So my question to you this morning, are you the ice or are you the clay? Right? And listen, I like good debate. Sometimes people, it's rare, will come and 
they'll debate me in the, in the, in the lobby. Did you hear anything that was said this morning, or are you just looking for an argument? You know what I'm saying? And then, uh, listen, I just, I just got to be me. <laughs> but, but for the most part, uh, people do fight those feelings. They do fight their thoughts. And then they say, you know what, maybe I'll, I'll listen. Maybe I'll come back. You didn't sell me, but maybe I'll come back. Sometimes it's months later. Sometimes it's years later. Sometimes it's in another state in another church. But God's word will continue to do what it's called to do. And his greatest desire is to bring people to salvation. So one of three things can happen. If you look at uh, Luke 18, we covered the parable of the sower. God's word is also the seed, which depending on which soil it falls on is a different heart. depends on how God's word is received and what people do with it. So three things could happen this morning. If you're a true believer, you're open to what the word says. You're being fed spiritually. Your spiritual belly is being filled right now because you're getting the word. If you're an unbeliever, you're either becoming more hardened or you're softening. So which one are you? Which one of the three? Last two verses. For you shall go out with joy and be let out with peace. You ever watch the news? You ever like read the paper? Do we see a lot of joy and peace in the world? No. That's a God thing. Because the UN can't bring joy and peace You know, the government can't bring joy and peace. That's a God thing. I'll read that again. For you shall go out with joy and be let out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Five out of five is the joy of a relationship with the living God. Amen. Now, if we look at this, we'll go over one through five is, what is he saying in this chapter? Number one, it's a clarion call. It's a universal call to all, every person on the planet. When we get into Romans, even those in remote areas, God will get his word too. Even in Iran and North Korea, people are dreaming dreams and seeing visions. It doesn't matter. God is going to, he loves everybody no matter where they are. So number one, it's, the, it's this universal call to bring people to salvation. Number two is to repent. So, so we have a responsibility. Well, can we continue being very worldly and then trying to get closer to God? It's kind of like you're walking in two different directions. Eventually you're going to split down the middle and then that's not good. So repent. Three, God's ways have to be learned. There's some adjustments that have to be made. It's a learning curve. It's okay. We're like children before God, starting all over again. Four, God's will accomplish what it has set out for. And five, really cool to close on, it's a joy to know God. And again, there's more metaphors here. You know, of course, and again, it's, it's only an ignorant person who would say, well, trees can't clap their hands. They don't have hands. Therefore, the Bible is not scientific. It's a metaphor. <laughs> Understand, you know, we can listen to songs and poets and be good with that, but people want to jump all over God's word. He says that to give us a better understanding. So in Genesis, the Bible tells us that after sin, this utopia, this Edenic situation uh, there were thorns and there were weeds that grew up. Uh, there was, you know, just uh, strife and relationship problems. And that's the result of sin. But here, God is saying, well, I'm going to replace that with the cypress and with the myrtle. You know, God is the great fixer. And please take this as encouragement. 
You might be here this morning saying, well, I have a relationship issue right now, maybe later with God. I have an emotional issue. I have an addiction issue. I have a past. I have a present. It doesn't matter. There's no, when God calls you to salvation, he doesn't have all these stipulations. You know, it's not a legal document to keep you from him. It's to bring you closer to him. So please understand that. And I think that my wife and I, when we were dating, and we went to a Calvary chapel, probably it took us a little while, but I know for me, I just wasn't sure. You know, I would come to church, and people would be singing, and they'd be raising their hands, and I'm thinking, well, that's not me. (laughs) These people are probably all pretty perfect. I don't belong here. Well, none of those people were perfect, and none of these people are perfect, and I'm not perfect. So don't let that uh, throw you off. Uh, There's millennial kingdom overtones, but basically God is saying a few things here, without going through every metaphor, is that a relationship with God brings blessing, it brings joy, it brings peace. It's also a testament to God's name and goodness. Whatever things that we ruin in, in his creation... He can undo them. He can fix them. That's what he does. He has the solution to everything. And his promises are irrevocable. He makes a promise to you. You're in the kingdom. Jesus says, he who believes in me, right, is, he won't die. He passes from death to life. He doesn't say one day, I don't like you anymore, so I'm going to pull that back from you. People do that. That's why we need so many lawyers in, in this culture. People break deals all the time. This, is, this isn't the God we serve. He's perfect. It's irrevocable. I'll read to you one more thing in Revelation, and then we'll close. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. pretty much it, it's the last chapter of the entire Bible. It says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Can it get any better than that? When this was written, Christ had not come yet. It was, again, but it was, it was preparing people. The cool thing for us is we're looking backwards at this event. It's already come. Christ has already come. He's already promised these things. He's already given these things. He's already given the invitation. We are in the age of grace. And you can come to the living God. You can share your life with him, your dreams, your fears. It's a relationship. The best one in the world. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let those who hear say, come, and let those who thirst come. And whoever desires, let them take the water of life freely. That means you. Just come already. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.